Well, hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Primary Care Podcast. It's Dr. Mark List at you with another episode of the Primary Care Pod. Uh, before we get to it, we're going to hit up the primarycarepod at gmail.com inbox for your questions, your concerns, uh, your thoughts. And today, uh, it's a rare treat. I get to read a piece of true fan mail. Not just a joke, but a piece of true fan mail. Um, let me let me read it. Uh, doctor wanted to be remain, remain, remain anonymous. Uh, doctor List, I'm a physician in a very small rural community. I deal with a lot of farmers and ranchers, and I greatly appreciate your insights and your thoughts on these topics. Well, thanks thanks so much. I got, I got to say thank you for this piece of feedback. Uh, he continues, um, now I, I have a really amazing case and I was listening to a podcast and I had a patient who cut his body in half with a piece of farm equipment and it was terrifying and it was it was very scary, but don't worry, he's all right now. All right. Yep. I got it. Yep. I got it. Good. I like it. Thanks for the, thanks for the feedback. Uh, and thanks for the joke. And, uh, let's start with the podcast. The primary care podcast is written and by a family physician for an audience of other physicians, nurse practitioners, physicians, assistants, residents, medical students interested in primary care topics. This is not a podcast for patients and should not be used as medical advice. This is also a personal podcast produced on my own time and solely reflecting my personal opinions. Statements of this podcast do not reflect the views or policies of my employer, past or present, or any other organization with which I may be affiliated. Thank you for listening to the primary care podcast. I'm Dr. Mark List. Here to bring you the latest news, guidelines, and updates from primary care sources around the globe. Keeping it under 15 minutes long because you're in a hurry and I'm not that smart. Well, welcome back, pod girls, pod boys, pod people, to the Primary Care Pod. It is your main pod man and pod doc, Dr. Markless, uh, with another episode. Today, we're going to kind of hit a two-parter. The first part is a quick review I got a couple of emails asking about my thoughts on the lung cancer screening guidelines. Um, we reviewed these when they were still in draft mode from the US PFTF. Uh, so check that out. It's episode, okay? Uh, it's episode. I know everyone has listened to every single episode, but episode 53, uh, we reviewed this pretty much in depth. So I highly recommend to go back um, and look listen to it. But for those of you who didn't listen or don't want to listen, the, the too long didn't listen, um, the recommendations for who needs to be screened for lung cancer has now changed. Um, and this was, the, you know, this is not a surprise based on, you know, six months ago, we talked that this was going to change. It is now age 50 to 80 who have a 20 pack year history of smoking, uh, which is different than it was last time. It was 55. Now it's 50. Uh, instead of being 30 pack, it's 20 pack and who have quit within the last 15 years. The key with this screening should be discontinued once a person has not smoked for 15 years or develops a health problem that substantially substantially limits life expectancy or has the ability or willingness to have curative lung surgery. And that's the really important part that we're going to talk about today. Um, it's not actually the, the change, right? Because the change, I think, is good. Many of us have had patients that have wanted to be screened for lung cancer and haven't been eligible um, for lots of different reasons, whether they, they haven't hit that, you know, the old pack year history, right? So lowering it to 20 makes a makes a, a more inclusive screen, right? And, and lowering the age to start at 50. Uh, you know, there's a lot of people that may not have qualified based on a um, an age criteria. And if you ask people too late in life, sometimes, you know, they've kind of resigned themselves to, yes, smoking is going to kill me. Um, but at age 50, maybe you can get more people on board, which comes into the trickier part where we've talked about this, okay? We have talked about this in the colon cancer screening guidelines that all changed based on modeling data. Some of those epidemiological data showing that people were getting colon cancer early and early, which is important, 
but it wasn't a clinical trial, right? There was no, there were, there was no in real life scenarios of, you know, control, control care and observation versus colon cancer screening that showed a mortality benefit to 45 and under, right? Not, not any new data, right? Not any new data. And in this lung cancer uh, change, we have a couple of pieces of data, right? And so there's a couple of different studies, seven randomized control trials in general. Um, from the last update, a couple have been updated. And so some of those looked at, you know, lung cancer screenings, the number needed to screen to prevent one lung cancer death of 300 over six and a half years, and the number needed to screen if people stick with it for 10 years being 130, which was a really, really big, big shift. Um, that, that 130 is a really, really good number. If you know anything, and we've talked about um, other lung cancer, uh, other cancer screenings, a number needed to screen in a trial of 130 to prevent one lung cancer death, that's really, really powerful data. So uh, that that cannot be overstated that if that can if that can ever be applied to real life data, um, that's great. Again, the 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 other study showing a number needed to screen in the 300s. That's what we that's what we normally see, right? With that's what we normally see when it comes to cancer screenings, where we our cancer screenings one person benefits. We we save one life for 300 to 400 people screened for cancer, and that's what we're going to talk about today. Um, that's the part of the lung cancer screen that I want to talk about today. Because lung cancer screening clearly has benefit, um, especially when done every year with the lowered age to 50. That was that was the study that showed that if you lower the age to 50, um, the, the number needed screen actually dropped to 130. Number needed screen dropped to 130 compared to 330. And again, with a 10-year follow-up. And so that's an important caveat too. And that is real-life data versus the modeling data. And I, I, my, one of my criticisms about the change was that they use modeling data that showed number needed to screens in the 30s, upper 30s to mid 40s. Their modeling data said, well, if we lower it to this range, the number needed to screen would be in the mid 30s to low 40s, which if that's the type of modeling data and those are the studies that are directing our cancer screenings, it makes me very concerned that we are choosing our screenings and we're choosing our age range and 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 interval screening and our pack year inclusion, we're making our changes based on these modeling data that clearly has never been replicated in a real life cancer screening study. Never. I I have never seen a single cancer screening that has any merit, any worth, any value uh, that has been well done in any measure show a a number needed to screen in the 30s and 40s. So again, I'm skeptical about the modeling data changing the guidelines, but it's very reassuring that the lung cancer screening does have real-life data that has some very, very promising numbers. The problem is, is that lung cancer screening is not benign. And again, we, we talked about that on the last episode. Lung cancer screenings are not benign. There are incredible rates of false positives, right? It's bad enough, right, when we talk about prostate cancer screenings, and elevated PSAs only having a 30% positive predictive value in terms of being cancer and a 70% chance that it's actually BPH. But the worst case scenario for that is, you know, ultrasound, biopsy potentially. In lung cancer, which, which again has its own concerns, I'm not I'm not I'm not I'm not poo-pooing the risks of prostate cancer biopsy because there are lots of risks for infection and bleeding and impotence and a lot of other issues. But when it comes to lung cancer screening, again, lung cancer screening, you are you are potentially creating cancers 
by radiation. And the number of false positives is bananas in some of these studies. In terms of if you go through a 10-year screen, if you stick it out for yearly screening, and once somebody commits to a, a screen, that's they really have to be committed into doing it like annually, right? To get the benefit of it, you really have to follow these lesions. Why? Because anybody who's had a lung CT scan who smoked probably has a pulmonary nodule or two. And to meet criteria, right, to, for something to be worried about, right, and to need a biopsy, it's based on the size, based on the, the consistency of it, right? And then you follow these to see if they grow or change. And many, 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 many of these people, the number needed to harm is quite high, right, in, in these studies. And I think it's, I think that's the part that a, even better than lowering the age, and lowering the pack year to get more inclusive. What we really need to be doing to tailor our lung cancer screenings are finding those patients who are motivated and who want to go through with the screening process. Because unlike a once every 10 year colonoscopy, this is going to necessitate a lot of risks, right? Just like, you know, you go through yearly mammogram starting at age 30 for some women who want to get them done early because of family history. At some point, you're going to have to get a biopsy. Right at some point, they're going to find an abnormal. You're going to go for secondary, third screenings, different images, uh, more frequent follow-ups, six-month follow-ups, and then biopsy. You know, clip placements, yada yada yada. I, I mean, at some point with lung cancer screening, you are you are locking your patient in to likely needing to have some kind of intervention. Statistically, there's a very good chance signing them up, and so these people have to be motivated, and they have to want to find something and they have to want to go through surgery if they find something. And in the JAMA article that when this, when this launched, right, when, when they announced, right, in the, in the, uh, I guess it was in, in March here, beginning of March uh, or end of February, when they, when they released this in JAMA, one of the articles that came with it was, yeah, we hope that everything gets paid for, but what, what matters more is having the risks and benefit discussion with these patients because that informed consent about what truly is it going to take to stay in the lung cancer screening program to completion, that's it, it takes a lot of discussion of the pros and the cons. The pros are we could cure your lung cancer and you could be that one in 35, like the modeling data says, right? But even in these clinical trials, right, that look at you know no lung cancer screening versus lung cancer screening, these number needed screens of the 130 that I talked about that, which is really impressive, these people all committed to yearly screens for 10 years, right? And going through with all the biopsies and going through with any surgery that needed to get taken, that needed to be done. And so I think that lung cancer screening is a lot more than just set them up once every 10 years with the colonoscopy and, 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 you know, it'll take care of itself. I mean, this is a, this is an ongoing fight. So Again, some caveats are, number one, if you're going to sign somebody up for lung cancer screening, you have to have a very good discussion about the pros and cons that, yes, this could cure your lung cancer. And if the data is real and the data could be real, right, um, based on these new changes and the fact that people, you know, we start earlier and we catch more of these and we go through more biopsies and more treatment options. Yes, the number needed to screen could be very, very, very powerful compared to other cancer screens that we do routinely. But the caveat is high risk for false positive, high rates of interventions needed and further workup and really need to have that shared decision making for it to be valuable for you and your patient. Okay. Uh, and again, number two is I'm always skeptical 
when modeling data is driving our policy decisions because modeling data, again, is is this imaginary perfect world scenario where everyone's going to show up every year for their cancer screenings, everyone's going to show up every year for their um, uh, for their you know CTs that they're going to keep that they're going to come back for the biopsy that they're going to go through with the chemo and the treatment and the can- cancer surgery to carve out a piece of a lung, right? So uh, again, I-, I think that you have to take modeling data, you have to take it seriously, but you also have to take it with a little grain of salt as well. That you know it's probably not a real life scenario because when we look at cancer screening trials, it's never that good. Okay, so part two though is I wanted to quick talk a little bit about some of the more recent and some of the more interesting and appealing uh, overall COVID-19 findings and studies that we've had recently. And and some of the the biggest uh, the biggest scientific and, and interesting studies that I believe from a not really clinical scenario that I think needs to be more in the clinical realm is that people who have had COVID-19 documented cases of COVID-19, and then get a vaccine, have upwards of 10 times the antibody response to people that simply were COVID negative, but had two vaccines, right? So even after their first vaccine dose, have 10 times the response compared to people who did not have COVID-19, and then had both vaccine doses. And why I think that this needs to change from the realm of the scientific literature now, which has been verified with multiple studies. Okay. This is not a single study anymore. There's now been multiple cases where this has been true. Uh, the second time it wasn't, I don't think it was exactly 10. I believe it was six and a half. I'm, I'm going off my memory on this six and a half times higher, but it's very clear that people that have had COVID have that natural immunity. And then as soon as they get that first dose, that booster, they see a tremendous immune response. And why do I think this needs to shape policy? Because we are now rolling through all of our patients. Uh, in my state, we're really opening up the floodgates. We're, we're getting, you know, even people under age 65, people with very, very minimal risk factors for complications, we're getting them vaccinated. In our state, we are rapidly approaching herd immunity, rapidly, um, compared to, because we had high rates of natural infection in our state, uh, high, high rates. Uh, In fact, we were, we are currently sitting number two in terms of cases, documented cases per capita. And I'm from a state where most people, I shouldn't say most, a very big chunk of patients don't believe it's real definitely did not get tested, definitely likely had it and did not get confirmed. Uh, I I, I would venture to say a very big percent of patients, in addition to the fact that, you know, we had a massive amount of people who got it in my state. So a large piece of 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 our state has natural immunity from the infection. And then we are we are one of the country's leaders in terms of vaccinations per capita. And, but now we're getting into the, the wrap-up part of the vaccinations. And this could save a lot of doses, where we could be saving doses for people who haven't had the had disease yet, who haven't had COVID, who need to get on board faster. And we are doing two doses for all these people, including people like myself who had COVID. And they're getting that second dose. And it, based on these studies, we're not seeing a dramatic jump from shot one to shot two in people who have that natural COVID immunity from their natural infection. And again, I think this is going to play out more, not only now with getting all the population out uh, vaccinated, but also in people who are hesitant, who said, you know, I I think I had COVID-19. I'm pretty sure I had it or they had it. So they're skeptical about 
do I really need to get the the vaccination series? I've got some natural immunity. And, and you know, we talk with these people in clinic. We say, oh, the, the natural immunity awaits, you know, you know, you know, fades over time. It wanes. And again, this is just one more. This is just one more tool we have, which we could say to people, oh, the CDC, if they would adjust to this, right, we could we could then use this tool to say, hey, you know, you had COVID-19. You can just get a one booster. You don't even need to go through the, the two shot series. And that's a much easier sell to sell the one shot compared to two shots. And so I wish that the policy would be changed. I wish that locally we could make that policy decision change for ourselves to get some of these skeptical patients to come in for at least that first shot, because we know that booster is probably enough to gain, gain some long lasting, strong immunity. I also think it will change. And when it comes to when we have future strains that are vaccine resistant and start making their way through the community, because they are coming, they are going to happen. And we're going to find strains that make our vaccines a lot less useful. Again, if you have that natural immunity, if we have an altered variant is one dose going to be enough for boosting long-lasting immunity to that variant? And I think the answer is going to be yes. I think the answer is going to be yes. So again, I think the CDC is behind the policy, um, behind the times on this policy. I think that um, I would feel very comfortable with the data that we have showing that uh, and and anecdotal evidence enough of people who had COVID-19 who get the first shot, who have tremendous immune response to the first shot compared to naive people who it doesn't come till the second shot. Um, I think that there's enough data now to support that. Again, we're waiting for the CDC to make that change, but I, I think they're going to make that change too late, and we're already going to be through vaccinations before we get through, um, before we get to it. So anyways, hopefully this episode has been helpful. Reviewing the lung cancer screening again, episode 56 has more information on it, but I think we did a good job reviewing today. And I think that, uh, again, uh, I think the CDC needs to adjust their policies for in terms of COVID infected patients and getting a getting their uh, COVID vaccine, I think it'll allow more vaccine hesitant people to go through with it. And, you know, even if that's only 5% of the population, that's an additional 5% closer to herd immunity at the end of the pandemic. So um, hopefully this was a helpful episode. Uh, thanks for tuning in. Uh, this has been Dr. Mark List signing off, reminding you you don't need to stay up all night to stay up to date. Thanks and have a great week.